Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Spilling the Truth. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a full-service marketing ad agency. They can work with you on logos, branding, interactive and digital media, really whatever it takes to take your company to the next level. They're fun, they're modern, they're hip, they're fresh. Check them out, www.bluefish.com. That's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode, you know, we took last week off to get caught up on a few things around here. We have a bunch of episodes coming out this week. We decided to record on Easter and open up a great bottle of Barbaresco. We talked about the fires in France. We talked about smoked cheese, all sorts of stuff. To be honest, I don't think smoky cheeses necessarily go with wine, but I just like them. I think it would go well with um, like Syrah, like a big Shiraz from Australia. I could see like smoky things going with that. You know, I had that one year where we had fires down in uh, South Arizona and I made some Syrah grapes from it because they were just going to toss them. That smoky characteristic, that actual real smoke taint, not the earwig taint, was actually okay enough where if you sold it by itself and didn't oak it at all you can kind of just treat it like it's a backyard barbecue wine basically people like oh yeah you know pair this with some ribs or something like that and it actually went real nicely it probably would have done well with this uh this gouda you know i don't know much about cheese production but how do you smoke cheese without it like melting it's is it like an actual chemical or is it actually like real smoke that they're smoking it i i don't know but i imagine it's the same way you would do fish like i'm thinking of like that the shed you know they hang those things up and the smoke just kind of it's in the room it's not really by the fire like it's in another room and the fire's in another room and they just pipe the smoke in yeah there's there's a there's a cold smoke it's called is that what it's called cold smoking yeah cold smoking is something they do with fish often like uh, smoke salmon because smoked salmon's not actually really cooked it's just smoked whereas when you smoke brisket that thing it's, is it's cooked. on the fire yeah yeah so do you think maybe they smoke oh, it's gonna sound weird but do they smoke like the the liquid aspect of it before it becomes cheese or do they smoke it as it's a hard cheese because like when it's still a milk like a milk product maybe they smoke that i have no idea it just Neither for some I. reason just kind of hit me i was like because i know like there's that there's like liquid smoke that's a fake smoke flavor that's really nasty i haven't i don't know what that is liquid smoke yeah my dad used to use it in roasts growing up he would actually it's like a seasoning thing no it's a it's a small little bottle like maybe like a four ounce bottle and it's super super concentrated smoke flavor and you literally just need a drop or two so he would it's just water in the bottom of his roasting pan he would put like two little drops and it would make it literally made it smell like you smoke the roast oh it's crazy yeah it's super powerful though like you can't use more than like a couple a drops drop or two you don't want to add it directly into food it's more to be added into a uh, braising liquid i want to get that for somebody and just like drop it into one of their drinks when they're not looking oh god <laughs> it's so powerful i mean actually i bought some of it a few years ago just because i was like oh i want to try this and it w- i didn't like it it was too it- much too much, and I think it's also a manufactured smell. I think I've become more and more sensitive to stuff like that. You know, when you're in the wine business, your palate gets so honed, and it's a good thing, and it's a bad thing. Yeah. Because good food tastes even better, bad food tastes even worse. Yeah. And it's just, it's inevitable. So if I have something that is too spicy, or it's got too much garlic, or too much of an herb, 
it sticks out way more now than ever growing up. Dude, I had this happen to me uh, last night. I took Sarah to go see Wicked, which is one of the, honestly, it's one of the dopest musicals ever. And uh, I went to uh, I went to this one restaurant. I ordered a Mezcal Negroni. And it was the first time I could be like, man, this guy's got like a heavy hand on like a Campari versus, you know, the Mezcal versus the Vermouth because it was just so cherry driven. And I was like, oh, and I started being like that guy where I'm like, damn, I don't want to judge people for how they make this. But this kind of sucks, man. Like this isn't balanced at all. Do you think it was the, the actual products he used in it or more the fact that he had the wrong? See, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he was heavy-handed on one or the other, especially if he was using a jigger, then it doesn't matter. But I guess, is there is there a more potent version of a Campari or... Because that's what it is, right? It's vermouth, Campari, and vodka? Correct. The things that... Are, no, uh, gin. Gin, sorry, gin. Yeah. But what... Because uh, I did the mezcal instead of the gin. What affects the flavor more than anything to me is using a quality uh, vermouth. And then, to be honest, the gin, just go with a dry gin. You don't want something too aggressive or too out of the way because you really want to kind of almost showcase the Campari and the vermouth. Um, the Mezcal Negroni that you'll drink, I think that's going to overpower the cocktail anyways. That's gonna Possibly. Because I had one at, I don't it wasn't known as, but I had a Mezcal Negroni at a place that makes good cocktails. And it was just that right about smokiness from the Mezcal that I liked without like the crazy liquor taste of the Nemezcal. This one was just way too much Campari. Like I, I could barely taste anything else that was in it. And, you know, it's like, all right, well, it wasn't like a high-end kind of a place. But it wasn't exactly a place that shouldn't know how to make a cocktail either, you know? So do you know what Brachetto is? Uh, we talked about it's this. It's almost... Brachetto is a red grape from Piemonte, from Piedmont. Okay. And it's grown by some Moscato producers. It is the the most famous one is actually the one of the worst ones you can drink. It's the Rosa Regale. It's like bright red, sparkling, sweet. It's like a red Moscato, essentially. I feel like I've seen it. I've a, seen like a Lambrusco kind of similar one. See, but... la, la, true Lambrusco oh, should be. I dry. think I know what it is. Is it in like a really unique looking like bottle? It's fat, uh, kind of fat on the bottom, yeah, and then it gets and it's all like narrow and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. That became very, very popular here in the United States a couple of years ago. The problem with Brachetto, it's a very low-yielding grape, so you don't get a lot out of it. So the cheap Brachettos out there are going to be about 20 25 bucks a bottle starting, yeah. which when you're looking in the Moscato category, 25 bucks is getting it's, more expensive. Uh, super high-end, yeah. People that drink Moscato like to drink affordable stuff. There are very, very, very few around this planet high-end Moscato drinkers. Yes, but I'll be honest, once you have a high-end Moscato, it just completely changes your mind. You're like, oh my gosh, this is a different wine. Yeah. So when we were in Piedmont at a famous Moscato producer, they make an unbelievably good brachetto. Well, we had cocktails on the patio, and they were calling them, instead of a Negroni, they were Negrettos, they called them. Negrettos. And instead of Campari, they used Brachetto. So it was... The fizzy version or like a still version? It, it's, it's a fizzy version. Okay. So it's just like a Moscato di Asti. It's a Brachetto that's got lively effervescence and bubbles in it. All right. So they used Brachetto. If I remember right, I they the used... the vermouth would, would have used it I, fresh. I, I, I'm trying to remember if they use it in place of the vermouth or the Campari. I think they use it in place of the vermouth. So I think it was uh, Campari, Brachetto, and gin. I would have assumed they would have used it in place of the Campari. I, I wish I remembered off the top of my head. Um, I'll have to look at my pictures. I like I like that little cultural swing where they have an ingredient that they add to themselves 
And so that it's still the same drink relatively, but you know, it's a totally new ingredient that changes how different that is so that you can get a Negroni in America and it's made, you know, vermouth, Campari, gin, or, you know, in my case, like a mezcal. So maybe south of the border, they do that. Or you go to Italy and instead they throw in a fizzy bruchetto. When we were in Bordeaux, uh, I wanted to get a Negroni and they looked at me like, we're not going to have Italian products in our bar. <laughs> <laughs> not a get, chance. Get the fuck out of here. What are you talking and, about? And so he made me a drink that was going to be semi-similar-ish. It wasn't semi-similar, but it was pretty delicious. Yeah. I mean, they use like a little lay in it and some other French liqueurs. But Yeah, I imagine if I went to France, I'd be like, can I get a margarita? They'd be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the each culture has their own liqueurs that they're very proud of. And, you know, you're in Bordeaux. They're not going to be necessarily supporting Italian stuff. That's true, because if I go to... It's weird. I could think of Italy ones. I can't think of Italian as much like certain liquors. When I think of liquors of Italy, I think um, Amaro's for the most part. But I actually can't think of any actual liquor from Italy. But in France, I can think of brandy, cognac, vodkas, armagnac, and things like that. But for Italy, I can't actually think of any liquors. Well, Italy has their own versions of brandies. So the brandies, because brandy is made with distilled grapes. grapes. So, but you're using whole grapes, unlike something along the lines of grappa, which is the from the must and what's left over. So there's there's an Italian liqueur, like the the grappas of the world, and the grappas that we have here in America that we've had the Sabbatopolis and whatnot, they're kind of rubbish. It's turpentine. I mean, you could sh- strip the paint off your boat with that stuff. Whereas when you go over there, when I landed in Italy about five years ago, I remember we went to this bar and they had. Barolo grappa, they had Barbaresco grappa, they had Brunello grappa, and they had specific grappas after those actual wines. It was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And we tried those. Like I was like, I'll try the Barbaresco grappa. I'll try the the you know Brunello grappa. Blew me away. The the what was it? Uh, oh no, but I guess it wasn't actually in tomorrow. But that Barolo one that you gave me, the Kinato, mm-hmm. those were unbelievably good. I thought those, I actually prefer those over the uh, Amaros that we were having, but that's not a liquor, I guess, and that's just a a differently fortified wine. Yeah, it's more of a fortified wine at that point. It's actually almost more like a mold wine. It's the liquor. Uh, Okay, mold wine. Yeah, it's the the bottom of a Barolo barrel that has been allowed to oxidize, and they enrich it with herbs and roots and things like that to make it very floral. It's It's not distilled. Correct. Yeah, okay. Whereas grappa is a distilled product. Amaro is... funny. That's the one I should remember was grappa. Amaro is a neutral spirit that has been infused. It's an infusion. And everybody has their own recipe for how to infuse it. Oh, wait. So Amaro is actually not a liquor? It's it's a liquor, but it's not distilled to taste like that. They actually start with a neutral grain spirit, and then they infuse it with the botanicals and the herbs. So like a gin, basically. Exactly. Okay. But it is still technically a liquor. Oh, yeah. It's... it's, Yeah, I mean, fuck, Fernet is 80 proof. Who were we talking to recently? Was it Renhouse? They took a Fernet barrel and they're doing a beer in it. Mm. Were you with me? I was talking to somebody about this and they recently got a Fernet barrel and they're putting a beer or something into it or a gin. It was either a gin or a beer and, and they're going to do something unique with it. It wasn't Dermot. It wasn't Dermot. No, this was real recently. This was right before I went to Napa last weekend. Hmm. I don't know. It wasn't right. I thought it was. I thought it was a really cool idea that they were doing. I was like, oh, that could taste really unique, or it could, you know, go south real fast, depending on what you put in it. I would love to meet people who had experiments go horrifically wrong. Not like, uh, it's not what we wanted, but I mean, like, wow, that was just a failure. Like the people who, instead of smoking this gouda, they tried something different, or the guys who take a fernet barrel and use it in a beer, and it's so 
bad that they're like, well, we're just going to drink this to ourselves because I don't even want to put this on the market. I want to try some of that crap. <laughs> oh, one of the beers I've been drinking over at Ren is called the Funkle Dunkle. And the it's a Funkle Dunkle. It's a beer that came out wrong. It, is that the Brett one? Something happened with it and they were like, we can't sell it. So they actually decided to, I think, add some bread in it or some cultures and let it sit for six months to get funky. Yeah. And it's delicious. So it was out of mistake. This amazing beer came out of it. Yeah. I mean, wasn't that what Dermot was talking about? He was talking about how he messed up that one thing, and all of a sudden it's 19 months later, and they're just like, well, we should do it now. And they thought it was bad. Turns out it was actually really good that they just let it keep going. Yeah, there's a lot of products, I'm sure, out there that were giant mistakes. They're like, oh, shit, we forgot about this, or oh, this went through a, a, a secondary fermentation, or something happened here, and then it turned out that people really liked it. That was <laughs> White Zen. Sour beers. Yeah, sour beers, the, White Zinfandel. The, the, the sour beer craze in America was kind of started by you know some breweries that had a beer that went sour by accident and they recalled it and people actually fought over the bottles because the people that liked it did not want it to be recalled who was that one i believe it was lips of faith was it the lips it, of faith the new belgium yeah okay and there was other people doing them i mean sours go back many many generations but yeah. in, in america it was not something that people did it wasn't done on purpose and when they released this beer it was literally people were like, this is, there's it's something wrong with it. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, imagine drinking a beer, like a normal beer your entire life, and then all of a sudden you get one that's sour. You're like, okay, that there's something wrong with that, obviously, because that, that'd be disgusting. I imagine it'd be the same thing. If you had somebody who was drinking German beer their entire life, brought them to America, and you gave them a triple IPA, they're like, did somebody hop this 27 times more than they meant to on accident? You know, I just saw that uh, there's a beer bar here in town, and they're doing a little IPA fest. And somebody's releasing, I think it might be Modern Times, is releasing a double hazy IPA. Why do people keep going to the next level? You're doing something good. Why the heck? Oh, hazy IPAs are great. Let's do a double hazy. What's next? A quadruple hazy? Yeah. Like, and then they're going to mix it with something, too. It's going to be a, a double hazy milk stout driven IPA. I was at uh, Boulder's on Broadway, and they had a milkshake IPA. So obviously, I saw that, and immediately was like, I got to try this. But it's not. What they did was they used a certain type of malt that is the same malt that goes into a chocolate like malt shake. And it came out, and it, was, it wasn't bad. But I was like, I was so disappointed because the name threw me you off. You were expecting me. Some, so, so, so milkshake IPAs are actually becoming very, very popular. It's crazy. There's, like, there's, again, it, that's that that crazy experiment of oh well, let's just keep trying to make things weirder. So they're adding lactose into it too. Is that what it is? Yes. Okay. So because uh, left hand uh, is great. Oso does a milkshake IPA that's fantastic. Um, Renhouse this week released a beer called the Roof Rat. It's <laughs> a blood orange uh, milkshake IPA. See, like, okay, again, there you go. Like, uh, a weird experiment. Why an IPA, lactose, and blood orange? That is three things that, how do you put all that together like to make something? So, it's I mean, like an orange creamsicle. Say, yeah, it's like an orange Julius that in a way. So crazy. Like, and be, they have to serve it in a small glass because it's almost 9% alcohol, too. That's the other thing. Some of these alcohol contents are getting out of control. Now, I wasn't overly impressed with this batch of Roof Rat. That's the, what they named it. The reason being is that I wanted so much more. The milkshake IPAs that I have had have typically had more body, more weight, more soul in them, where this is a little thin. They asked me, I'm, you know me, I'm opinionated. No, not at all. And, and if someone says, hey, what do you think? I'm, I'm a professional taster. This is what I do for a living. I'm almost reluctant sometimes to tell you my opinion because I don't want you to People to be uh, insulted by any means, especially if you go and you got to see them all the time. Especially when it's my local name brewery. So they asked me, like, "So what do you think of it?" And I said, "I need to have a couple more sips before I make a judgment." 
Yeah, well, we did that with the one guy who actually gave us like a sample of his own personal stuff. It's like, okay, you know, honestly, you know, here's the here's the good. What do they call it? Like, uh, you know, it's that burger form where the buns are the compliment and then the craps in the middle kind of thing. Where like the all right, first thing is the compliment. Oh yeah, it smells great and it's you know we really enjoy that. And then like you know you put the shit in the middle where it's like oh by the way this is thin. It doesn't taste good on the back end. Blah blah. And then you finish with a compliment. It's like a compliment burger basically, except the patty is shit. <laughs> but in a way, the this roof rat beer was. And, and it's called Roof Rats because in Arizona we have, we have so many roof rats. They're roof rats, and it's very common around areas around citrus trees. Meanwhile, everybody in New York is like, shut up, bro. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's why they named the beer after the... Because it was a blood orange beer. Yeah. You ever seen a roof rat? Uh, maybe. Dude, they're... Like, for Arizona standards, they're huge, man. They, they are a good, like, two feet long, and the tail is a foot by itself, and they just eat through all the wood. <laughs> so... As the beer warmed up, more flavor came out of it. And that's what I told them is that it's a beer that I don't feel they should serve at the temperature of the rest of their beers. They should almost have it a few degrees warmer because more flavor came out of it. But it was just missing the body of a milkshake IPA to me. Yeah. And you expect it to have more body just from the name milkshake also. Well, as a professional milkshake taster that I am, I was thoroughly disappointed right out of the gate. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is a beer. I got to try it. I liked it. Like, it actually was a good beer. But the name really screwed with me a little bit. So I was at a, a wine tasting in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And at the you know the, the table where I was at, I'm talking to everybody. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And the guy next to me kind of was like, I'm a professional donut taster. Good for him. And I was like, ah, ha, ha, ha. No, really, what do you do? And he literally was pulled out his card. And he makes a career being a professional national donut taster. Wait, so you can actually have a job in this? Yes. All right, I might, I'm going to start a milkshake podcast. When you said that, I, that's the first thing I thought of is like, you should probably have like a... Um, what What was that famous girl who everybody tracked down? Uh, Lord. Uh, she was like a French fry taster, a mashed potato taster, and she was under a pseudonym for like three years. And she was just doing all these reviews of whether it was French fries or whatever forever in a day. And then somebody finally outed her for doing that. I was like, how great of a... That's a fun job to me is to be the obscure taster. Like, wine is that. That is a wine thing. The professional tasters of wine, the, you know, the Jancis Robinsons, Parkers, uh, Galani. Dude, they're just drinking wine and giving you their opinion on it. I mean, if I was a professional milkshake taster, which I would love to be, I would love to be flown across the country and drink all the milkshakes. I'd gain 200 pounds and have diabetes by, like, next year, but I would do it. <laughs> I feel the way to get into it is you have to really attack social media, and you have to have websites and blogs and publications attached to it. This way, you know, if you all of a sudden started a separate Instagram handle called, like, John the Milkshake Man or something like that, you know? <laughs> That's my stripper name. <laughs> <laughs> That's already used. Damn. <laughs> I'm multiple personalities. <laughs> and then started, you know, like, a website and a blog, and... All of a sudden, people started following you and, you know, people started saying, hey, you know what? They, they would reach out to you on your website and say, hey, I'm going to this town. Where do you recommend? And all of a sudden, you start becoming the lifeline of people for milkshakes. And then all of a sudden, people start saying, I want the John the Milkshake Man to come and taste my milkshakes. Yeah, and people start following. And people start flying into town to, like, taste their milkshakes for their big grand openings. And One thing that's crazy, though, is depending on the type of person you are, is you gotta you either have to be that real serious person who is... I take my job seriously. I'm not. I'm. I. I really appreciate you for flying me out or doing whatever. But like, I'm gonna give you my honest opinion, and you have to be prepared that the second you say, "Wow, that sucked," 
that contact's done. You burned a bridge by being honest, which sucks, you know? I mean, really, really good people will sit there and listen to you and be like, damn, why did I suck? And then you could be like, well, it's thin, you know, you use too much of this. And then maybe over time, they're like, okay, try it now, we got better. But most people, the second you say, that's terrible, you know, I'm sorry, like, that's it, they're done. People get... Everybody else then, you know, if you're sitting there and you're, oh, this is the best one I ever have, then that's it. Like, they're off to the races. Like, it's like a Robert Parker coming in and going, oh, this wine got 100 points. Well, they never need Robert Parker to ever come back. They don't need another rating probably ever because they got 100 points. They're going to keep doing it for fun, but it's their their business just explodes from that point. Yeah, people want your opinion until you give them a shitty review, and then they don't want your opinion anymore. Yeah, and that's the scary thing. I And from a business aspect, if you're sitting there going, okay, I'm confident enough to reach out to that guy to have him taste my stuff, either takes like just a, a lack of, I, I guess not knowledge, just like, well, everybody's doing it, I'll do it, but most people are probably sitting there going, I have faith in myself that this product is really good, and I love it, and my friends say they love it, and the guests love it, and I have great people, and then you send it out, and boom, it comes back 89 points, you're going to be like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, how? Like, was the bottle bad? Was this batch bad? Was the year I sent bad? Like, was the judging bad? And, you know, you're going to be sitting there running your head the whole time, like, what happened? How did I get 90 points? How does everybody love this? And I got 89. Yeah. How, how did some Boda box wine get 90 points and you know your family property that you go out there and harvest the grapes yourself and clip every single like leaf off yourself and you're like Wait, your grandkids what? are out there you're, you're if you know if you're a, if you're a grandpa and your kids are out there and they're picking with you and your family's there and like you put all the energy and love into everything you do you get 89 points and meanwhile your next door neighbor is the massive production facility that just you know runs a machine through picks their grape they buy all new barrels they use oaks they use staves they get 92 and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, well, they also maybe took out a big ad in that publication that keeps, keep, ad. that keeps the donut taster in business. Yes. <laughs> they buy the magazine for like all 12 of their shops and everything. Yeah, it's true. It's it's a that's a crazy industry. So I I would like to be a professional milkshake taster at some point in my life, <laughs> on my deathbed, like right when I know my heart's thinking like, oh, we can't taste it anymore. <laughs> I think how you have to do it is you have to be good at marketing. You have to, in today's age, it's easy to make happen. However, you have to be good at marketing yourself. You have to be good at the social aspect of it. You could just throw it online, and it never, will never go anywhere. You need a marketing team, and that's what we're realizing with this podcast: yeah. is is how to market it and how to get it out there and word of mouth. And you know, whether it's through our Instagram and taking pictures on the Instagram. You know, I think Twitter's kind of a weird medium. I don't really use Twitter that much, though. I do tweet out new episodes. Yeah, there's too much chatter to me on Insta- on Twitter. Yeah. Just, you can get lost. To, it's like you're shouting into a crowd and you're hoping one person in the crowd looks at you and goes, oh, I heard you, everybody, let's listen to him. If anything, I do like the fact that there's the archived aspect of it where you can look up somebody and kind of go through and see what they've had to say over the last two, three, four, five Which months. Is super dangerous depending on some people's Well, some people, some people get burned on that and they go back. I mean, Kevin Hart. Look, yeah. I mean, look what happened to him. Well, one thing too about being a judge of whether it's food, wine, anything... Is it's not just the marketing aspect. I think it's the writing aspect too. It's it's not just hey, here's why I I gave this wine a ninety points. I gave this food this whatever. You have to write and really really define why you did that. You have to come from a knowledge base that's like I, this is why I think this wine got ninety one points. It's because there's certain things that were off here. The nose finished here. There's a whole structure. Like right now, sitting with this wine that we open, my first thought: if I was an average consumer, I wouldn't drink this wine. 
And the reason for it is, is when I smelled this wine, it smells like somebody farted in my glass and mixed it around with their feet because mm. it's a funky wine. But I know how this grape is done, and it's just it's going to blow off in 20 seconds or, well, like a couple minutes, and it's going to be one of the best, most fragrant wines that I've had because I know that it's good. So as a wine critic, you have to tell people, listen, this wine is going to be funky. It is going to definitely make you sit there and go, what am I smelling for a second? But here's why. And you have to engage the consumer or you know whoever's reading your article saying, it smells like this because this grape does this thing. Give it a couple minutes, let it open up, and I promise you that floral nose will come out, and it's going to be the best wine you taste. Get past the nose. Give it a couple seconds. And that's why somebody who all of a sudden will give you, this is why I gave this wine 94 points. And then your consumer could say, oh, I get why he rated it this, because if it was just me, I would have thrown this in the trash can. You know, I've been following a number of reviewers for a number of years, uh, wine reviewers. Um, some of them have been people like Robert Parker, who... If you like big, bold, juicy in your face wines, Parker was your guy. Well, Parker has a publication and he's now divvied out the duties to a lot of other people. The girl who's doing his Italian reviews is one of my favorite reviewers nowadays. She's so passionate about wine. She gets stuff sent to her office or to her house. She goes to these events, Vin Italy's. She goes to these big release parties and reviews all the wines. But sometimes she just goes to the local shop and buys three wines from a producer that has never sent her anything and does a review on them just to review them. There's yeah. not a monetary gain. She's not getting a free dinner out of it. She's, she's doing it because she's passionate about it. And I really, really appreciate that. She just did this this week on her Instagram. She's like, I went to this shop. I'm, I'm, I've always wanted to review these wines. They've never sent them to me. So I used my own money out of my own pocket to buy these bottles to do this write-up. Well, here's the crazy thing about that. She does that, what, probably every week? couple bottles you think at a time let's just assume she does that three or four times a week she goes out snags a bottle and drinks it and anything she does not like she will probably not write about she just kind of goes oh, yeah, i didn't like that whatever i don't have the time to deal with that but when she hits something she goes wow i love that and they write about it and all of a sudden you're the winery and you're the winemaker and all of a sudden you know, your Instagram pops up, you got tagged in something and they're like, oh my God, I found this gem. These guys are great. You as a small guy who has no influence anywhere in the world that you're at, you're a little tiny producer here. And all of a sudden this big, huge publication reached out and went, we love this wine because we randomly drank it. Dude, that's huge. That's to the, to the winery that is striking gold. But to her, that's just a normal day of her trying whatever. That's a huge difference of things going on in the wine industry and also getting extraordinarily lucky well it's amazing when you if you follow uh, monica on instagram because when the wine shipments show up she'll be like hey i'm doing Bernello this month she's like i just got back to my office and there are like there's a pallet a full pallet of wines just on her doorstep yeah it's crazy and she she opens up all the boxes and she lays them out in her living room and it's almost like the entire living room is just covered with bottles like 400 bottles, 500 bottles, 600 bottles. Like, And she has to open those up on and drink them and try each one of them. I don't think I could do it. After, I always thought it'd be so cool to be a wine reviewer and do what she does. And after following her on Instagram, I, there's no way. You know how hard that, it's got to be, I imagine as a person coming up in the wine industry, one of their biggest things would love to be like a, a, a wine reviewer. Uh, whether if you're an enthusiast, you know, Parker, uh, like spectator, and you're like, oh, I'm the Italian producer. And all of a sudden that day really sinks in where all of a sudden, you know, ding dong. And you've got an entire case at your door. And you're like, yes, I've got a case at my door. I get to try this. And they're like, no, no, no. This is the first one in the morning. Like you're going to get another one later. 
review these now quickly go oh shit all right you pour those and then all of a sudden there's another case and all of a sudden there's another case and all of a sudden you're looking around your house and you look like a hoarder of wine because you haven't gotten around to the reviews and you got to quickly just pop cork drink it and what happens when you hit that wine you're like oh my god this wine is so stunning it's so amazing i want to drink this but you can't because you've got 27 other wines you have to review that day it's got to be so rough to sit around and be like i'm gonna try 400 bernellos over the next two days in my living room and write about getting drunk because you're definitely losing your palate towards the end and to come up with a unique even without the drinking like your 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 mouth still absorbs alcohol and i want to make that clear sorry because i I, i'm not sitting there saying she's uh, for listeners like she's not drinking all the wine she's obviously like spitting swirling doing what uh jason was telling us but you still absorb a little alcohol at a time. Without a doubt. I remember talking to, I had a buyer that did a cattle call every Tuesday. What's and, a cattle call? Uh, in the wine sales business, you know, a lot of restaurateurs say, I can't taste wine six nights a week or five days a week with you reps. You guys get one day a week to come and taste me on wine. So he sectioned out Tuesdays. Tuesdays was his day off, but he still came in every single Tuesday and tasted wine with all the reps. We would line up. That's why it's called a cattle call, because you just... Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you, you show up to the restaurant, and there's nine other reps with their bags, and you're like, oh, man, I'm going to be here oh, I'm in, you're, you're in a skew. <laughs> yeah, basically that's what happens. Well, at the end of the afternoon, he's now tried 100 wines, and he spit every one of them. And I asked him one day, I go, so you spit every single wine. If you got pulled over, do you think you'd get a DUI? And he's like... I'd almost guaranteed I probably would, even though I haven't actually swallowed a single thing. So I guess my question is, then knowing that on someone like that, what's the best time to drop off the wine? Because at what point is his palate and, you know, drunkenness or tipsiness all lining up where it tastes good and he's so happy that everybody's there and he's trying stuff and you're like, perfect, I, I found the bubble. Like, because if, if everybody who comes in from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m., he buys a couple bottles he likes, but he buys a lot more from 11 to 12 all of a sudden because he's got a buzz going, and then he's really buying most of his wine between 12 and 1. You'd want to make your appointments between 12 and 1 well, because then he's kind of buzzed. You know, his palate may be beaten up by some reds, and if you bring in the Riesling, he's like, fuck, that is amazing. I, love I want that on my menu, but his palate's so screwed up from everything the rest of the day, it's kind of throwing it off. Yeah, he used to only see people between 2 and 5, and also, you had to see him because he gave you the order then, too. Oh, right. So, oh, so, so he'd be right on the spot. So you, ta you tasted him on the, on the wines, and then he'd be like, okay, well, I have these five wines from you already on my list. I need a case of this, 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 two of these, three of these, six of these. There's another place here in town that did a cattle call. I believe it was Tuesdays or Wednesdays, and it was mid-afternoon. It started at 10. It would end about 3, and people would just line up. But he never bought anything on the spot, and he would always mail you at the end of the day what he was going through. Is it a French word? <laughs> Here in town? Yeah. No, it was uh, Elements, Sanctuary Calabash. Oh, because I was thinking of Terroir. Yeah, no, actually, I, I never really worked with them that much. He, I did one time. He had a cattle call kind of a thing. He it was, was one of my first places I ever went to. He was like, yeah, be here at Tuesday at, you know, 1 o'clock. He was somebody that was very particular about his reps, and we were a small little company. He didn't really want to deal with us. So he said, I remember going in there, and he goes, I'm happy with all my people. Thank you very much. So, all right, now that I just smelled this wine again, it's so fantastic. See, I was talking about how it was funky, gross, and whatever, and now it's just, it's stunning. This wine is so fantastic. You know, we're recording on Easter. This will come out the day after Easter. This will come out <laughs> maybe in a couple of days. You all will be, you'll Happy be previous to Easter to everybody who's listening. But, you know, I think certain holidays, you should open up a good bottle of wine with friends. I think that's really important. Yeah. Often, I let wine just sit around and sit around and sit around. We drink a lot of good wines together, but there's certain wines that just kind of always linger, there's, and there's a, a gray area of, here's what I drink with everybody, 
here's my holy crap high-end stuff, which you only open once every other year, and then what you're doing right now, where you're opening up a really cool bottle of wine. And I don't always want to share a great bottle of wine with people on holidays, because often if you go to a holiday dinner, there's going to be half the crowd isn't going to appreciate that special bottle that you've had in your cellar now for 10 years. You just pulled this yeah. bottle out to share it, and somebody comes up and goes, does it taste like Rumbauer? <laughs> Is well, this like, a really oaky, buttery shark? No, it's not. You know, and and then they try it, and they're like, yeah, this isn't as good as my barefoot. But that's what happens, you know, with the world. A lot of people just don't, you need a pen? Yeah. I was like, I had one over here. It's gone. So, Sorry. <laughs> so we decided, uh, so it's Game of Thrones night. No spoilers. We're not going to talk about Game of Thrones, really. But Also, we haven't seen it yet. <laughs> true. <laughs> so Bran is still in the courtyard. I can officially say that. I could I did feel check. his glare from here. <laughs> I, I checked before we started recording. He's still sitting in the courtyard. Nobody's brought him in yet. That was my favorite thing about the whole show is we really didn't say anything during it except that one part where Bran was just staring. And I, th- I was sitting there. I was like, dude, does anybody move him out of that fucking courtyard? <laughs> it's so funny. And those aren't spoilers. It's just so hilarious we could say that. Yeah. So, But on Sundays, we get together with friends and we barbecue and we watch Game of Thrones. And tonight, I was like, it's Easter. Let's open up something really special. I got food in the oven. It's barbecuing. We're going to do some ribs later. And so I grabbed the Magnum because I always say this when it comes to large format bottles, size matters. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, my God, he better do something because I've got so many jokes. <laughs> but the guy who shows up to a party with a Magnum or a double Magnum, you want to make that guy your friend. It could be something cheap. It doesn't matter. Like you're like, all right, I get it. Uh, like, <laughs> that guy's ready to party. Totally. So we opened up a kind of a special Barbaresco to me. To me, it's one of the most amazing Barbaresco producers out there. They are the world's greatest cooperative. And what I mean by that is often cooperatives, people go poo-poo-poo when it comes to cooperatives because they're not always quality focused. In Italy, cooperatives are what a lot of towns do. When you're in, say, the town of La Vis, the town of La Vis, every single person pretty much that lives in that town owns a little quarter acre up on the hill, and have some grapes. Do they have their own winery? No. What happens is at the end of the year, when, they, when everybody picks everything, they bring it all to the town square. Every person's vineyards get mixed together. You're sometimes paid based on the amount of grapes you bring in. So if you overyield and you bring in more grapes, you make more money. They're not paying you based on quality. They're paying you based on quantity. So that's why cooperatives kind of get a bad name sometimes or a bad rap. Where Protatory Barbaresco has a three-tiered system to pay their people, and it's based on quality. They 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 check the bricks. They check, and he's he's learned because Italians can be scammers. No, <laughs> when when he when the grapes come in, they test the full bin of it because what happens is people were actually putting their best grapes on the very top the of the top. bin. <laughs> And they'd bury the crap in the middle and the bottom. And so he's like, we've learned we have to actually go through and take seven different samples from each bin when they come in. And they pay people based on the quality of the fruit, based on the bricks, based on how it looks and everything. And so when all the fruit comes in, everybody gets a a cut based on the quality. Some people always make a little bit more money because they produce a little bit better quality. The, The nine single vineyard producers, on the best years, they will bottle a single vineyard bottling of those wines. Whatever every, the other, I think there's 56 members of the cooperative right now in Predatory. Are those members vineyard owners, winery owners, winemakers, or is it just like, hey, it's Uncle uh, Rico down in the village is you know part of the co-op? These are 56 of the most 
influential growers in Barbaresco, but most of them do not make their own wine. But they're growers. Yes. Okay. So some of them do make some of their own wine, and some of them are allowed to take up to a certain percentage and produce their own bottling. However, Protatoria is so well-known globally that it's an honor to have their grapes into the cooperative. Yeah. The guy who runs the cooperative, Aldo Vaca, is voted in every year, basically, as the, the head of the Protatory. And he's been the head of the Protatory for like 30 years now. And he's literally one of the most... Yeah, so he has some pictures of some people, or is he actually that good? He's, he's, the, he's the godfather of Barbaresco. I've walked vineyards with him. He knows every single soil pattern, every single wind pattern. He knows every little thing that goes on in Barbaresco. I mean, if you ever have a chance to talk to this guy, there's nobody that knows more about this town than, than Aldo Vaca. Wow. So they only do the single vineyards on the very, very best years. And, and actually, it's not always based on the best year. It's based on the best wines. So example, 2010 was considered one of the greatest vineyard vintages to hit Italy. I mean, you had to be a moron to make a bad wine in 2010. Yeah, the reviews on 2010 were one of those ones where everybody's like, oh my God, you have to buy this. This might, There's never going to be a, a decade that has a great vintage like this. It was yeah. Probably like one of the most number one rated wines in the 2000s. The Protatoria the Protator de Barbaresco did not release single vineyards in 2010. Why is that? They blended all of their single vineyards into their normal bottling, which actually makes the normal bottling even more prestigious then because then all, all the top end stuff is blended together. So you're actually getting a cuvee of all the top vin, vintage uh, vineyards. So kind of coming off of that, it's that's a really awesome way to make your lower end one even better to introduce more people to it. Somebody who did that recently in America was Wayfair. Wayfair has, they do nothing but Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay. And they had a year where their single vineyards or their single clone selections, their single site selections wasn't good enough to be by itself. So they blended it all together. And then their, their basic blend actually got 99 points. And they were like, wow, this is so good. And then of course that introduced so many people to the brand. That sounds like that's that's actually really smart of them to be like, all right, listen, it's actually everything is so good. Let's put it into our basic stuff to bring more awareness to the table. It, and it wasn't so much that it was so good. So Barbaresco and Barolo are roughly, I think, like 10, 20 kilometers apart. They're not far away from each other, but Engl- uh, Americanize this. It, but it's very eight miles. <laughs> Google it. Um, <laughs> you you have very different wind patterns. Temperature patterns. We'll get into firing the cannons here again in a little bit about what they could do in Barbaresco. I really want to get a Barbaresco cannon. But there was a late rain that happened in Barbaresco that did not happen in Barolo. So the wines were, in to Aldo Varca's opinion, the wines were a little thinner than what he wanted. That's why he did not release single vineyards. I personally have had most of these wines over the last, say, 15 vintages. The 11 was my favorite vintage that they had ever done. And it was one of the vintages that did not get a lot of global praise. I loved it because it had acid. It's mm. zippy. So a little bit cooler of a year. It, they were similar. You know, what happens often, and I, this was something I learned in Italy, often when they have their five-star vintage, when they say, hey, everyone, this is the, this is the vintage of the decade. Everyone needs to buy it. You know what? The, the general public loves that vintage. It's the year after that all the collectors and wine lovers fall in love with. It always seems to be that way. One gets a better score. Like, like 10's got a better score than 11's. But you know what? I'll drink an 11 over a 10 any day. Really? Without a doubt. It, it had more life to it. 10's were, 10's were more juicy, more round, more giving. 
where this had that peaks in the valleys, you know, where it made the vineyard stick out more. Without a doubt. I mean, the 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 complexity of the wine in elevens, the second I tasted it, I was like, wow. So I happened to purchase and get my hands on a six pack of Magnums of Purgatory. And Magnums always seem to age a little more gracefully too. Plus, then you're the guy who shows up with the Magnum. Size at the party. matters. And everybody's like, oh, hey, Damien's here. Damien with his Magnums coming around. But think about it. How nice it is that we can record a podcast, we could drink a little Barbaresco, and then we could take this bottle to dinner tonight, and it's just going to be even better. And everyone's going to be like, oh, my God, they show up with a Magnum, even though there's only one bottle left in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> True. And, and it'll be so opened up that it tastes delicious <laughs> right on the spot. You know, so basically often, you know, when they talk about Barolo and Barbaresco, people say Barolo's the king of Italian wines, and people consider Barbaresco the queen. Probably one of the great references you can use to describe these wines. Same grape, same region, same overall laws as far as when you can release it, releasing it on the, you know, after the third year after harvest to actually call it to be the DOCG, the having to deal with the yields. Very, very similar laws to Barbaresco and Barolo. However, the wines of Barbaresco to me tend to be a little more approachable when they're in their youth. They're a little more mature, you know, kind of like sometimes, you know, guys and girls. You know, when you got a guy who's, you know, sometimes it takes us a little... It takes a while longer. It takes a little longer for us to mature sometimes. It's just the way life is. Whereas often girls, they're a couple steps ahead of us. They tend to mature at a much younger age. They tend to have their shit together at a younger age. We're guys. I mean, she, some of us still don't have our shit together. You know? that's, <laughs> some, some of us do not. <laughs> that's my reference for Old Vine Zivendell. You know, Old Vine Zivendell is like that dude who's like... 50 years old and still hasn't got, you know, gotten it all together. He's and he's figured it all out. Yeah. That's how ready to party, rock and roll. And I'm he's, all, be, he's in your face. It's taken him 70 years to mature. Yeah. You know, whereas your Grenache Blanc is now mature after, you know, five or six years where, you know, old vines in still a baby, but everybody still wants to party with old vines in more than to do Grenache Blanc. Yes, that's very true. But then everybody has a headache the next morning from Old Vines Inn versus Grenache yep. Blanc. <laughs> so, so, so typically I say like something like a Barbaresco, often they're, they're more approachable when they're young. You could typically buy a Barbaresco and not worry about laying it down for 10 years. A lot of people think you have to age Barolo for 10 years before it's ready to drink. This is, this is an 11. I was crushing through 11s a year after they released. So in 15, the 11s were drinking fantastic. This now is hitting eight years. I think this wine is probably about hitting a good stride overall. That's good, too, because Nebbiolo is not really an approachable grape when it's young. Everybody who drinks Nebbiolo young is like, wow, that's so astringent. My eyes are watering. The tannin is so much. It's tearing my teeth apart versus this is like, okay, the tannin is there. The acidity is definitely there. And it tastes really good. But it also, to me, is it still seems a little less structured than usual only because it is still very young. But as an average person who was drinking it, you'd actually really like this kind of a wine. As long as, like I was saying earlier, once you get past that nose, like give it a minute to blow off, pour a glass of it, let it sit for 10 minutes, and it's going to be fantastic. I mean, this is this is like that room in grandma's house that's been bottled up <laughs> bottled up for nine years. Man, you open that door and you're like, whew, this is definitely a grandma Ooh, room. Funky. It's a funky room. But open up the windows a little bit, let the air blow through. All of a sudden it's more potpourri versus yeah. just danky. <laughs> it's not the haunted house smell. That weird pla- yeah, I was going to say, yeah, the plasticky, you know, grandma was in. All the perfumes that have all combined for one smell and it slowly breaks away and you're like, oh, well, grandma wore like 20 different ones and... Now, it's not one single smell. Now, large format wines will age slower than small format wines. 
a wine that is in a 375 will age much faster than a wine that's in a 1.5 liter thing. The reason being is, you know, that cork is allowing air to come in and out. Well, in a large bottle, there's more wine to air coming in, whereas a small bottle, it's going to just age so much faster. So how about, and I think it's, it's usually, I mean, I see them obviously on 750s and everything, but the bigger bottles have wax around it. So is air getting through, through wax, you think? I don't know, to be honest. That's a great question. I was always taught, and I, I've never really had the definitive, this is true, this isn't, but I have seen it, so I might be right on this. If it's a, you know, anything from a magnum and lower, lay it on its side, because it's still the same size cork for the most part. But if it's from a three liter and higher, everybody tells me to leave it upright, because the cork is so big, it's still pushed on the side. And if you push it down, it's actually so porous that eventually the wine will find the one crack and work its way out. Also, production of normal-sized corks and normal-sized bottles is very widely done, whereas when you get to a large-format bottle... Oh, and a big cork. They don't always match up well. Yeah. So sometimes you can get corks in large formats that are loose. Sometimes it's really tough to... Because the person who makes the glass is different than the person who makes the cork. So you're trying to get a cork to match a large-format bottle, but the mouse on those bottles vary. Not to mention the actual machinery that it takes to put a big cork into a bottle varies because your standard bottling machine or corker can handle a magnum. Most cannot handle three liters and higher. So you almost have to hand do it. You get a hand crank to actually physically put that cork in. I've seen a place where they hold it and there's a little, it's almost like a shoehorn kind of a thing. And they hammer the cork into the bottle. And also, by the way, you know, it's not like they're making the neck super long to get a cork in there. It's getting wider and wider and wider to the point where it's almost like a bung in some cases on these. And those are huge bottles, and you rarely see those, but, you know, it's, it's very unique. We opened a 9-liter one night, and it had a pretty much normal-sized cork in it. It was, was the neck weird. like 8 it, inches no, long? The, the, it was a normal-sized hole on it, and we were so shocked. We were Dude, like, that's crazy. That would be such flimsy glass, I would imagine, at the top of that bottle. Yeah. But it makes sense if you look at people's cellars or collectors or you go to a winery, the large 9-liter, 18-liters, they're always standing upright. They're never laying down. They're never laying down. Never. Yeah. Because I'd imagine just because of how porous it is, it, somewhere, somehow, that wine will find one way to get in. Awesome. And that's why I've seen wax around it, though, because I think they also kind of go, wow, it is so you know, porous. we got to put wax on the top of it. Think about the weight, too, behind it. If you lay it down, you now have nine liters of wine pushing on one single cork. Oh, good point. Whereas a 750 only has 750 milliliters pouring on it that cork. Hold it. I never thought about that. I didn't that. think about that either. You're right, because you're right. All that volume pushing on that cork might, over a long period of time, slowly move that cork forward. Yeah, so true. That's a good point. I never thought about that. How do we get on a rant about large formats? I guess because we're drinking one. But. Yeah, probably. I don't know. We, get, we find some weird rabbit holes, man. So yeah, so Barbaresco, so Nebbiolo grape. I always recommend Protatory because it is an affordable Barbaresco. Typically, yeah, the price re- is great. Retail, there's. This is a great gateway into Nebbiolo. If you're if you are listening and you want to drink Nebbiolo, or maybe you've had a Lange Nebbiolo that you really liked and you want to step it up a notch, go to Barbaresco and try a Barbaresco because they're typically going to be about thirty percent cheaper than Barolos. And this is generalization. There's Barbarescos out there that you're going to give a left kidney for in your first one <laughs> son. Like they're, they're pretty expensive. But as a general rule, Protatory is, you could find it on a restaurant wine list 
under 100 bucks on most restaurant wine lists. And you can find it at a random store, and we'll just use Total Wine as an example. At Total Wine, I think it's like $35. So your average you know, store, let's just on average say 40 bucks. Yeah. And I think they're better than most cabs that I have. I've had them typically restaurants they'll be anywhere from say 70 to 90 dollars for the normal one at a rush on a restaurant list yeah which is pretty affordable it's very affordable wine for something that's come all the way from around the world to the united states or to arizona or to whatever your midwestern town is and it's it's just enough where like you know we've talked we're, we're obviously our grape is nebbiolo and uh we've talked a lot about barolos and we did the gatanaro with uh jason for that little bit Barbarosco is great. It has all the flavors that most people want in it. There's still a lot of fruit, but the complexity of weird, earthy flavors pops out. Not enough where it's overwhelming you that you're like, oh, I just don't like this earthiness. But it's still all there to kind of make you a little intrigued to trying a Barolo. So if you do go into it going, oh, I tried a you know Nebbiolo de Alba, and I really like that. Well, then step up to the Prototor, excuse me, step up to Barbaresco. And if you go, wow, I really like Barbaresco, then open your wallet up and try a really good Barolo and... Now you have three different wines from the exact same grape that you like. You, but also, I think something that's special about these wines is they're, they're, they don't match the way they look. If I look at a, a Shiraz in a glass or Old Man Zinn over there, his wine is big and dark and... It's black. Inky and it's black. Inky. And when you taste it, the flavor is typically going to match what it looks like. When you're drinking a wine and you can see right through it, and you're like, okay, this is probably it's a Pinot Noir. This is going to be fairly light. This is going to be fairly easy drinking. When you look at Nebbiolo or you look at like an aged Barolo in a glass, you think it's going to be this little wimpy thing, but it's that you know 135 pound fighter that can just whoop your ass, dude. It is, man. It's those uh, what's what's Ma- Manny, welterweight? Ma- Manny Pacquiao. It's, Magnum, it's uh, yeah, the Floyd Mayweather's, the yeah. little dudes that you're like, oh. It's that little guy who's standing in a group of, you know, six foot three dude, 300 pounders. And you're like, how's that guy fit in there? And it could kick the crap out of everybody. Dude, think about like, you know, those old Japanese movies. We have like the the, the, the Bruce Lee, the, the master guy and all these big muscle bound guys are coming at him and he's just flipping them over yeah. and doing everything like that's this wine. Like you look at it, you're like, he's not dangerous. It's such a weird thing that Nebbiolo is so contradictory. It looks light. It drinks huge. The tannins absolutely suck the moisture out of your mouth. And then you immediately falls up with like a waterfall of saliva from the acidity in it. It's just so weird. It's such a unique grape. It is. It's Plus, it's, it makes you sound fancy when you say Barbaresco. Barbaresco. Like, yeah. So, can I get the Barbaresco? Barbaresco. Like, oh, okay, cool. I'll get you that. Or okay. how you say it? What? Barolo? Barolo. Barolo. I've gotten better at it. You're getting both. Yeah, you get hit that hard, what, second vowel? First. Hard first you, vowel? You, you, Barolo. Yeah, Barolo. Barbaresco. So, so, in America, we hit the second syllable hard or the third syllable hard. These, you hit the first one. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, so Barbaresco. But, but, it, but it's not like Sangiovese, it's San, Sangiovese. Sangiovese. It's, you hit that, Key, auntie, yeah. Yes, you hit the first part of it. In America, we hit the second part of it. But that's part of the Romance languages that they do that because it flows, and then it's that up-and-down language when you're speaking. So it basically kind of represents the grape. It kicks you in the teeth right up front and then slowly opens back up and makes everything feel better. I mean, you know, the, the grape is Nebbiolo, so it's Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo. It's, it's on the front end, whereas in America, they're like, Nebbiolo. Like, it's Nebbiolo, good. yeah. Yeah. Hit that, that second part of it. Yeah, because how do we... Caber, yeah, it's Cabernet. Yeah, it hit that hard nay. The Cabernet. Yeah. But in Italian, it'd be Cabernet. <laughs> That's exactly what it would be. Yeah. Speaking of which, actually, I, I printed off a little something fun today just to kind of talk about, you know, while we're kind of enjoying these wines. We want to talk about the glassware here in a minute, too. Cool. But Wine Searcher, which drives me up the wall, but it's a <laughs> great it's a great research, a uh, great tool to use. The reason why it drives me crazy is because people will look up wine pricing as me being a wine salesman and they'll be like, well, 
I see it selling in New York for this price. Why are you trying to sell it to me for this price in Arizona? And I'm like, well, because it has to go on a truck and truck across America. That costs money. Like, you have to pay for the driver. You have to pay for the gas. You have to pay for this. It's going to naturally be more expensive here than New York. Yeah, buy from New York, and then by the time it gets shipped and sent to you, it's going to be, you know, the same price, if not more. And some people do pull a bait and switch on Wine Searcher where they'll throw something up there to bait people in, and they call, and they're like, no, 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 we're out of that, but I'll sell you this. And so there's some games that people play on it. But so Wine Searcher actually did, they went through their entire database and they actually listed their top 10 most wanted wines of two different categories. And I have the list here. This is by producer. So the first one I want to talk a second about or a minute about is going to be their top 10 Chardonnays globally. This is excluding Burgundy and it's excluding Blanc de Blanc. Okay, so are we talking brands or regions? Brands. Actual brands. This is on Wine Searcher nationally. The brands that... Just what everybody in America is looking at? Or this is be globally. It'd be off their website. Okay. I want to play this game. Yeah, this is their top 10 most wanted wines from around the world. From Wine Searcher. Okay. So so are the the 10 most popular Chardonnays that aren't Burgundy and aren't Blanc de Blanc because you can't... It's that champagne. So champagne doesn't yeah. count. Okay, so it's not. So okay, I'm gonna go with seven of them are probably American, and three are outside of America. All right. So get. I know you can guess at least one, maybe two of them right away. Probably Rombauer being one. Rombauer Vineyards. Okay. Average price listed thirty nine dollars. Okay. How about what's a big guy I've been seeing recently? Whitehall. Nope. No way. Chateau Montalena. Chateau Montalena Chardonnay Excellent. Napa Valley. Current entry level of them, uh, $50. Is that what they're at right now? Yep. Actually, it's not too bad of one either. All right, so... Let's and this, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is national stats across. So these are actually pretty accurate as far as, you know, what's being sold around the country. Uh, especially being from where that is. All right, so uh, I'm thinking of Fess Parker. Not on the list. That's a big one. Who else is Big Chardonnay? So no Paso Robles ones I can think of. I can't think of Monterey. Okay, I'll put it this uh, way. Hold on. I, I can see the bottle in my head. Hold on. Give me a couple seconds. Um... Oh my God, it's such a big ass brand. Shit. Most of these are US. There is an Australian one and there is an Italian one. There's an Italian one on there. Yes. And there's an Australian Sh- one? Shocking. All right. I could never guess the Italian. So what's the Italian one? The Italian one is uh, Gaia. Yes. Gaia. Really? Gaia? Gaia. Gaia, Gaia ba- ba- Barbaresco producer. I know. It's a huge Pima one. You see the Toscana, you see Gaia everywhere. Chardonnay. And also, crazy as you think, Rieslings from Piedmont are amazing. Dude, I have that GD Vira. It's so good. I can't I wait I, to drink that. Oh, you, you, what's something that makes you cringe? The term warm climate Chardonnay, right? Cool climate Chardonnay? Fuck yeah. That's Piedmont. Mountain cool climate Chardonnay. So yeah, so Gaia's Chardonnay from Longue, average cost $228. <laughs> Damn, I'm going to avoid that one. <laughs> uh, all right, the other big guys I can think of. How about Mayakamas? I would have thought they would have been on it because of their connection to the Paris tasting. Yeah, but no, they're not on there. And Mayakama has they have problems in the United States. People embracing their wine. It's been a tough sell in this country. It really has. If you think about it, we know it because we're wine geeks. But I don't think it's widely known amongst everybody. I think the I, average person. So I have two more I can think of. That I think would be enough where there's a lot of consumers buying it and a lot that want. And my thought is either Mond- Robert Mondavi. 
Is there a Mondavi one on there? Nope. And the only other one I can think of would be the dude who makes all the good stuff, uh, Konesguard. Ooh. Ready? There's two Kongsguards on there. He's got two? Okay. Kongsguards, The Judge, Napa Valley Cult Winery, um, 100 points in Parker a couple He's years ago. He's got 100 points on a Chardonnay. On a Chardonnay. Jesus, I didn't know that. Uh, average price, $445. Yeah, for a Chardonnay in America? Good for and him, And that's man. for The Judge. The other one is his Napa Valley Kongsguard, 123 average price. Dude, that's insane. So there's two Kongsguards on there. One that I knew would be on there as soon as I saw this list myself. Just think about it. Wait, real quickly. Is it all... There's no Oregon. Does the rest of California? There is no Oregon's. Okay, because the only other one I could think of is a guy who produces a ton. I don't know if he has any, but the dude over in uh, uh, Fort Ross Seaview, he does William Salyam ones. He does uh, social... Fuck, uh, because of the K. Uh, kill, and I, um, You're there. You got the first two letters. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know what I'm probably... I'm thinking Kerner. It's not Kerner. Kerner's we, we, a grave. We've actually drank one of these together, um, I think. I think with uh, Johnny one night. Crick, uh, Crick, uh, Kissler. Kissler. Yes. Yes. This is one. K- Kissler right. is on there. Uh, Kissler's Sonoma County Chardonnay. Uh, average price, $127. Damn, that's high too. And then Albon Clement would be the only other one I would imagine. Uh, ABC's not on there. I mean, ABC is pretty... I mean, Yusum is kind of sought after, but not like... Yeah. All like, right, so what are the other ones? Cause other super, ones, super wanted wines. So uh, what are the California ones? Yeah. Cake bread, Chardonnay. Cake bread... God, I was, I was like, I was thinking of so many big ones. I want to say Maryville. But unfortunately, the average score on cake bread is 89, but it's still very highly rated and it's highly it's wanted. It's got to be one of the original ones, probably. Yes. And I think that's just Duck like... Corn. Duck Corn. was the other one I was going to think of. It's just like Silver Joke. It's that that people know the name. Like cake bread kind of came out and put a name out that people recognized. Well, they've been doing it since the 80s. And if you've got a group of people from the 80s drinking, yep. they're sticking with you for life. The millennials might not gravitate towards cake bread, but... I, I'm I'm very intrigued to see what brand now, 30 years from now, will still be popular but okay for millennials, I guess like our generation people, because we'll, you and I will drift from thing to thing to thing. So I'd be intrigued to see who the cake bread is 30 years from now. So um, who else? Aubert. Aubert. I just had one. I was, we were talking about this yep. earlier. A- a- average critic score of 94. Average price? 180 bucks. 191. Yeah. That stuff's expensive. So uh, we've gone through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's two left. And these are the foreigners? Uh, well, there was two foreigners on there. There was Gaia Gaia, and the other one is from Margaret River. Leewin? L-E-E-U-N. W-I-N. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense, because I see a little of their stuff in America. Their, their art series, Chardonnay, from Margaret River, um, has an average score of 94 points and a refreshing price of $77. <laughs> You know what? To get on a boat and make it this far and be from Margaret River, which is the other side of Australia, that's actually pretty reasonable. And then the last one is uh, Marcasian. Marcasian from Sonoma. I'm not familiar with that brand. Uh, Sonoma, oh. Co- Sonoma Coast, made by uh, Helen Turley. Yeah, I mean it's a Turley wine. I, I was gonna say because if you ever had a time where you're like, name the top Zinfandels, I'd be like, is it all Helen Turley? <laughs> yeah. So also the most expensive one on the list, Marcasian, five hundred plus, four hundred ten. Fuck, that is. Your mind is blown right now. That's why I wanted to pull Chardonnay? this list out. Yeah, for for not Burgundy. God. Yeah, meanwhile, people are listening are like, "Holy crap! I wouldn't spend that money." But you know what? You don't have to because I guarantee all of those sell out. So they did the Chardonnay list, and of course, with the popularity of the Chardonnay list, they produced just released the Cabernet list. Okay, this well, one could be way harder. 
we'll get into it in a minute. So these, let's let's pause. Let's go back to these wines for a second. Um, so we poured this wine in two separate glasses because there's Burgundy glasses and Bordeaux glasses. Burgundy glasses are the ones that have like the kind of fat middle, and it's meant to have Pinot Noir or Chardonnay because it traps all those flavors in the glass. Whereas your Bordeaux glass typically comes up more of a straight line up. It's meant to give away or give off the alcohol. You want the alcohol to blow off. Where Pinot Noir, the alcohol is not necessarily going to be trapped in the glass. You want the esters to be trapped in the glass. Typically, a Cabernet or a Bordeaux varietal has a lot of esters. You don't have to trap it. It's going to come <laughs> up. It's going to come up and slap you anyways. Yeah. But you want that alcohol to blow off a little bit. So those are the two styles of glasses. I've had a lot of conversations with people in Italy about what glass to use for which varietals. The way I've se- talked to people about it is your Tuscan varietals, which typically lend themselves to pairing well with Bordeaux grapes, a.k.a. Super Tuscans, you're going to want in the Bordeaux glass. So if you're drinking a Brunello, if you're drinking a Chianti Classico, a Coli- uh, Chianti Grand Selezione, you're going to want it in a Bordeaux glass. If you're drinking Nebbiolo, Nebbiolo, you want to trap in some of those esters because some of them are a little more subtle. So typically, you're going to want it in a burgundy glass. I figured, let's just test it and see what happens today. So we actually poured this Barbaresco in one of each type of glass. I like doing this because most of the time, I can subtly tell some differences. This one actually, to me, has a sort of noticeable difference. I'm liking it more out of the Pinot Noir glass. It's more concentrated. I can actually kind of identify more of the smells that are coming out of it. And um, it's almost as if the nose got bigger by being in the Pinot Noir glass versus the uh, Bordeaux glass. Just because, you know, like it's that concentration where it's forcing everything to one point. And I don't think the openings are like vastly different. I mean, they're a little bit, but... It's that yeah. little, it's the wide hips that's on the burgundy glass. You know, the, the fact that it's a little big around the middle. I can actually smell, so this is weird. And maybe it's just because this was sitting here. I mean, it is because it was sitting here. Uh, Bordeaux glass, I get more of the tertiary nose. And by tertiary, what I mean is like I can smell the oak. I can smell the process. It's kind of like laid out a little bit more. So like, you know, being a Nebbiolo like this, you're not really getting oak off of it, but you can kind of get an influence of the oak from it versus the Burgundy glass. It's just straight fruit. It's that orange rind. It's that earthy, like, I'd never get the tar. I always say that because I've never had tar. I've never been on a roof of tar. I know you've tarred it and never, or you've actually tarred a roof before. So maybe mm. you get that. But to me, it smells like a potpourri. It smells like all the fruits and citruses I would buy that withered away kind of like sun-dried for the most parts. Uh, dry- but also cherry. I do get cherry on a lot of Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo, for me, you get the dried rose petals. Rose petals, yeah. Potpourri and also tea leaves. The potpourri. See, I don't know tea leaf well enough. I know I, I've just never been around tea. Like, I don't know if somebody would hand me a bag. Are we talking like a, like a black earl tea or a chamomile? Like, when you say tea leaf. Because, well, yeah, there's so many different styles of tea out yeah, there. Yeah, because there's, there's now people like, well, what type of tea leaf? Uh, there are going to be but, tea experts out there like, yeah, which but, one? But I'd say, yeah, just generic good tea. tea. Not, not some raspberry, white, orange blossom tea or something like that. Just like yeah, just regular old black tea. Black tea. You know, and for me, I get, I do get a lot of those dried flowers, tea leaves, stuff like that off of. I always Nebbiolo. like to say, I think it's great, is that it's a potpourri smell. 
depending yes. on what type you buy, whether it's a combination of a, and I had a bag one time and I, I actually still have the bag. So I always can remember the name. It was my first time I, Sarah came home cause she'll put some potpourri throughout the house occasionally. And she opened up this one bag and I went, Oh my God, that smells like Piedmont. Like it smells like when I drink certain Nebbiolos and what was in it was oranges, uh, cinnamon, rose petals, lavender and a few like other dried out you know withered mm-hmm. potpourri and the bag smelled like a fresh nebbiolo and i was like holy crap and so i'm looking at the bag now and whenever i think of if somebody blinds me on a nebbiolo and i have that old orange rind my first thought is to be like okay it smells like potpourri i think this might be nebbiolo see the burgundy glass to me has more of those potpourri characteristics whereas out of the bordeaux glass it actually smells more oxidized Yes. As weird as yes. that sounds, it almost smells no, a yes. little more cooked smelling it out of this glass. And I don't know why. Maybe because all those... I don't get the floral characters. All those subtle it. esters that are that, say, that sit in this glass, I think are just blowing out of this glass and getting lost. And you're maybe just getting the alcohol out of it or the the tertiary, the, the additional notes on it. Taste-wise, by the way, it's the exact same. <laughs> totally, yeah. But that's actually... But you, you're right. The you, nose is so much better in that burgundy glass. You taste with your nose first. You I'm know? actually about to pour the rest of this into this glass, but I, I, I want to let this sit for a while. So by the end of the podcast, I can still have that, you know, that long pour and see where it's at from there. But you're right. I mean, honestly, it's breaking down for me to a point where I 100% prefer a burgundy glass for Nebbiolo. Without a doubt. Yes, I agree. It so, is weird, you know, like the average consumer who gets to go out. And how weird of an effect on it is the fact that if it's if you've never drank wine before, I'm like, you've got to try this wine and whatever. And I poured it into a glass that doesn't work for it. I wonder how much that changes somebody's opinion to not have it. Same thing with beer. Like, how often do we just drink out of a pint glass? Should we be drinking out of the snifter? Should it be, you know, have you seen those IPA glasses where it's a thin bottom and kind of white stout? Like, how big of a difference does that make? If I was served this wine in this glass, I'd almost be a little disappointed. Yeah, right? The nose wouldn't be where I want it to be. The wine tastes fine, but every smell, it's just like, eh, I want, eh, eh, yeah. it's not what I want. Like, and I think maybe a difference, um, and I just kind of realized this as I was talking, the difference of beer is beer is mostly taste-driven more than it is nose. Like, obviously, more people now like the nose, but it's the taste. Wine, the nose, makes the huge difference. This is the reason why. Often you're drinking beer at... 37 degrees where all those all the stuff you smell it's muted the roof rat i literally sat there and warmed it up once i warmed it up it all the the nose came out of it whereas with wine if, if this wine was served right now at 37 degrees neither of the glasses would have a nose it would smell you'd smell like maybe like you'd smell wine but no flavors and that's the beer thing yeah. and i think that's why beer is more taste driven than nose driven yeah that's a good point because you got you definitely don't want to be handed a warm beer granted this is america by the way because i imagine in other countries where they don't have the refrigeration they got guinness better. i mean there's some beers that you want warmer we drank uh when we were drinking some beers in italy it was they came they just handed you the bottle from like a shelf because they got it that day so they know it's not bad but at the same time you're like all right it's different all right but, it, but wine makes Insane different on glasses. All right, so let's talk Cabernets. Ten, mo- right. ten most get these. popular Cabernets in the world, like based on wine searcher results. All right, does that exclude Bordeaux? I will tell you right now, based on the rules, yes. Excellent. All right, how many American? I'm going with, let's see, Cabernet Cab so big. I'm sorry, five American, five outside the world. Okay, here's what they actually did. They excluded... Napa on this list. 
Oh, shit. That makes it difficult. Because you probably have all... It'd be all Napa. You'd have t- 10 Napas on the list. If it would be all Napa. Yeah. It would. Okay, so everywhere in the world excludes Napa. All right, I'm changing my opinion to... This is a crazy list now. I I'm changing it for American, six outside the world. Yeah, the 10 most wanted non-Napa Cabernets and also no Bordeaux because Bord- these, yeah. these are non-blends. And, so and straight... And all, all Bordeaux's are blends. Yes. So straight 100% Cabernet Sauvignons. All right, is Paul Hobbs on there? Paul Hobbs is Napa. No, Paul Hobbs is Sonoma. I think he makes. They have. They, well, they do have Napa. But he's in Sonoma. Oh shit! Because by default, he's actually in Sonoma, but he has Napa grapes. All right. So uh, Gaia. <laughs> Does Gaia have a cab on there? <laughs> no. Uh, I'll tell you that right now. No Italians. Oh, uh, because I would figure what's that? What's that amazing cab? Uh, Costello de Rampanello. Da Rampanello. <laughs> I believe the the Dolceo is all cab, but. I think they still use some Sangiovese in it, like on some of them. There might be a couple percentage. So, who's in Sonoma going through, like, um, Verite? Surprising. Not on the list. Paul Meyer. Not on the list. I think Paul Meyer's now fully what, what, in Napa. One of the ones we've actually drank with Johnny um, a couple times at Atlas, I believe. Well, I was... I was think, think about Washington State. Quilce, not Quilcita Creek. Quilcita Creek? Yeah, because they got 100 there you points. Go. Uh, Colcita Creek, Cabernet Sauvignon, Columbia Valley, Washington. Average score, 95 points. Average price, 227. But I have to think of big brands. Like, who are some... These aren't always necessarily dollar-driven brands either. You got to remember that. Some of these are going to be very, very cheap. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, big brands. Because I would say, like, a Rodney Strong. Nope. Uh, Prisoner's not... That's a blend, so that doesn't matter. I was just thinking. If they was... Um, Let's think Australia for a second. That dude's name... Or, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Penfolds. Two Penfolds on here. Bin 29 and <laughs> you're just guessing, whatever. You're just guessing fucking They're numbers. They're bins, right? It's bin something. <laughs> so, Penfolds for sure. So, so Penfolds. Or Molly Duker, but no, that's right. Yeah, but Penfolds for sure. Penfolds bin 707. And they're, 707. And they're 407. Oh, okay. I thought they only had one. I didn't realize S- they had a few. Ready for this one? So the 707, average price, $415. I thought one of them was like almost a thousand or something ludicrous. Well, they have there's they have some even some higher collectors. Okay, they because they, they had one that was like a hundred points every year and they're just they're impossible to get. Yep. Okay. Big brand. Uh Mandavi's out. So while you're thinking, hold on, real quick. So Penfold 707, average critic score 94 points, average price 415. Penfold's been 407, average score 91, and the average price 68. Are there any South American ones on there from Argentina, maybe Chile? There are South American ones on here. Okay, so if it was Argentina, I would think of like maybe Katana Zapata or uh, what's that other big ass I am brand? shocked there's no Argentina ones on here. Well, then if it's Chile, it'd be Toro del whatever or Concho del Toro. Yep. Or Real really? Quick. Concho del Toro? Uh, Concho del Toro, the Don Belcor Cabernet. Okay. So the the Don because uh, no. I'm thinking of brands. I don't know that they have cabs. I'm thinking of the big ass brands that make it into America yeah. and Concho Toros everywhere. Yes, but their Don Melcor is like their big collector one. Okay. Uh, average score of 93 points. Average price 100. dollars It's a hundred dollars for the Don Melcor. Yeah. <laughs> well, just like you know the the Cloapalta that we had up there. Oh like. my god. So by the way, I was at Total Wine the other day just because I was snagging some stuff that we could eventually drink later, and uh, they had that. They had the newest release. I think it was 2014. They also had a 2000 and 
what do we drink? The four? Yes. Four. Yeah, they had 2006 as well for like 10 bucks more. It's like $120, and the other one was 110 But I thought it was kind of cool that they had both side by side. Um, I'm, dude, there's a name I'm thinking. Of. It's not Mandavi. It's not Rodney Strong. It's so popular, dude. It's everywhere. I've seen it at Safeway and at Albertsons. It's it's you're gonna have a lot of trouble actually with the rest of these to be honest. There's only one or two that you might really be like, oh yeah, I'll get that. But yeah, you're. Uh, I just I'm thinking of the big ass brand. Like I would say like a fest par- or a Justin, Justin. Surprise, it's not on there. That should be really Justin's yeah. or uh, what's the other J Lore. Um, so there is actually a Paso Robles one on here. Hold on, all right. So it's a, it's not J Lore. It's no. not Justin. It's a brand that I've actually never had. Uh, Austin Hope. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Austin Hope. Are those like the three big names I yep. think I've seen? Austin Hope, uh, average score of 91, average price $51. Really? It's 51 bucks? Yep. The only other big, oh, no, Whitehall was Napa. So, yeah, I'm just, it's kind of weird because I'm thinking of the big guys. I don't know where to go from Behringer. there. Behringer. Oh, my God. Knights Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Dude, yes. We have bottles, or my dad has bottles. That he loves that stuff. Yep. Behringer. Aver- a- average price? 40 $29. Yeah, that's about right cuz it's like 35 bucks out here. Dude, that stuff is actually really good <laughs> wine. Right? I will I'd give a shout out for Behringer for doing a great job with the Knights Valley well, stuff. I always, I always say that, you know, I forget wh- wh- that's not part of uh, Napa, it's the back end. When when you have white Zivadel money, you can afford to do other things. Okay, but wait. Wouldn't Silver Oak Alexander Valley technically be on that then? Is it on there? No. It's not on there. Nope. Huh. So we have one from Spain. Spain. Still another one from Muga. Chi- no, Muga wouldn't make one. Still another one from Chile. Is another from Chile? So I don't know any other Chilean brands other than Concho y Toro. From uh, what's the Chilean one? Torres. Oh, I did say Torres at one point. Okay. So it's the uh, Mas La Plana Cabernet from Benedes. It is an average <laughs> score <laughs> of ninety-two points and an average price of sixty-three dollars a bottle. And then you said one from Spain. I feel like we should buy some of these bottles and drink them on the show at some point. I'm Especially dumb, the, I'm I think we should do the, these top affor- 10 cab, top the, 10. Cause some of these are affordable. Like we can go out and buy a couple of them and not break the bank. I'm not going to go out and spend $400 on a Chardonnay. Not, a, not unless it says Burgundy on it. If it yeah, says Corton Charlemagne. Yes, yeah, please. Oh yeah, I'll do that. So there's an Australian one. Another Australian one. And, and I brand? don't know this producer. Not Molly Duker. Wins Black Label Cabernet from Coonwara. Oh, I never even heard of Wins. Wait, wait, like win as in the casino? W-Y-N-N. Yeah, the casino in Las Vegas is the win. Yes. Wins Black Label Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a, I guess, a historic wine from what it says here. Uh, average score, 92 points and a price of $29. I'm officially pouring this into the other glass. So the other one from Chile is going to be the Los Avacos. Oh, so there's a third one. From Chile. There's two from Chile. There was no, Con- Con- Contra Toro, the Torres. Torres of Spain. Oh. So it's not the same Torres. Oh, maybe it's the same family. Yeah. Well, no, Torres is Spanish. People just think it's from Chile. Yeah, Torres oh, is well, Spanish. I'm guilty of that. Totally. Uh, well, so the Los Vacos Cabernet Sauvignon from Chile, um, which is weird. Average score 87 and an average price of $10, which I don't know how that's ended up on there. Global. That could be it. It's got to be a global thing. Yeah. It's probably like one of the most sought after. It's probably the Mandavi of South America. And then the last one we haven't talked about is it's called the uh, Mato Blackbone Cabernet from California. Mato? M-O-T-T-O. Never even heard of that. It was invented by Chateau de Michel. 
Chateau Saint Michel. Uh, okay. In 2015, so it's a brand new project. Oh, that's crazy because I would have assumed maybe Chateau Saint Michel would have been on there. It is a, I guess it's a impressive wine, wallet friendly price. It's not even reviewed. It's based on some scores and some uh, user ratings, and that's it. And a price of twelve dollars. Cool. It's just fun. I love throwing stats out. I'm a numbers guy. You know that. So I see this. You're stuff a numbers dude. Yeah, I like the, I like the guessing aspect of that. I'm 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 really surprised though. Some of the cabernets that didn't end up on that list. But yeah, but we're thinking maybe from like a wine geek aspect in a way. True. And you you know what you when you think Spain, you're thinking Rioja. You're thinking there a lot more blends. You know they're gonna have something else in there. It's gonna have a little, you know, Carignan blended into it. It's gonna have a little Tempranillo blended into it. But this is straight, hundred percent. I'm really surprised there was nothing from Argentina on there. Yeah, you know you what you couldn't do? What top ten Nebbiolos from around the world? Well, it's, you got <laughs> one country pretty much. Yeah. yeah, it's just these guys. I'm excited to try later on, just because we do have the single vineyard ones of the Protatore, and then we could then kind of showcase. Hey, here's what the Pahe Vineyard tastes like, or the uh, Asili and. What's the other like nine that they have? What I would like to do in the next release, I'll talk to the people who do the importing and see if we could do it as a two-part episode. I'd like to do the northern vineyards and the southern vineyards because half of the vineyards are north of the town of Barbaresco and half the vineyards are south of the town of Barbaresco and they have very different qualities. Oh, I imagine. So stuff like Ovello, Asili, Pahe, Pora are very Monca different Gata. than Moncagata, Montefico, yeah. Montestefano. They're, they're I'm getting a, a trend here with the Monca or the Monta. Yeah, so there, I have a very interesting video that I put up on YouTube. You can actually just Google Aldo Vaca walks through the vineyards, and it's posted by me, Damien. Uh, there's two separate two put that up on the website. Two separate videos. I'll actually link it in the website. Yeah, it'd be cool. It's two separate videos. One of him walking us through the northern vineyards and literally going, "See those 17 rows up there? That's Pahe. See those 14 rows over here? That's Ovello. This is a Sealy over here. The reason why this one tastes like." piney is because of this the reason why this one has a little more acid is because this one's a little closer to the valley this one gets a little bit more to, it's, it's, it's a degree and a half cooler going through this vineyard than that vineyard so going back to the protatory how many vineyards are in that bottle 56 but in the single vineyard versions of the protatory how many do they have there's only nine single vineyards. Okay. So nine vineyards of the 56, they really say, wow, these nine stick out. Like, yes. These guys are crazy. So, so Barbaresco invented the cruise system in Italy. They are the first people to do cruise. Really? Barolo has copied the crew program in a way. You know what? Barolo has fucked it up really bad, and they're just fucking it up worse and worse and worse every month. Like... Too many personalities, too many, and moving and too many people want to be in this appellation or this crew or that crew, and they start making up crews. They, there's hyphenated crews. <laughs> look, look what they did to Canubi. Canubi's like, hill has like nine vineyards, different, different designations was, on Canubi it. Canubi was 15 hectares, and then somebody lobbied it, and now it's 40 hectares. But you can use Canubi dash this and Canubi dash that, and it's Canubi Boschkish. It's just they've muddied the waters. Whereas the the way it works in Barbaresco, it's very exact. This is that vineyard, and it's lineated, and you it's got exact. This is where it begins. This is where it ends, and they're not changing it. And they're the first people in Italy to, to do that. It's amazing for Italian standards that they stuck to their guns and went, nope, we're not changing. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a – yeah, so true. So they left the door open for what Burgundy did and Bordeaux eventually did where they kind of crewed it off. 
Well, well, I guess more Burgundy well, than Bordeaux. Well, the the Burgundy and Bordeaux classifications and vineyards were done before what Barbaresco did. These are the first Italians to try and the actually Italians, do that. Okay. Correct. And, you know, Burgundy's got it pretty dialed in. If you see the vineyards, I mean, it's there's walls between them. They're, um, they're privately owned, and then they're, they're giving their grapes to the Protatory to deal with it. Yeah, and actually, something we were just talking about, too, is the fires right now that's going on in Burgundy. Like, the fires on purpose. Yeah. And we'll uh, we'll definitely do a French episode to even dive more about it, but that's insane. Those pictures are pretty cool to show the fires throughout the vineyards. So they're doing they're burning three types of fires. They're doing torches, they're doing barrels, and they're doing smoky haystacks. Now what happens is a vine can survive cold weather, but once bud break happens, you have these fresh little buds popping out, and if it frosts over the cells will burst, and you completely ruin your vintage. In 2006, Burgundy lost 50% of its vintage. Oh. 50%. That's insane. So this is the most crucial time for frosts. And this is one of the latest... infancy. This is one of the latest frosts they've ever had. To get a frost on April 16th or 17th is almost unheard of. Like, the buds are actually, like, fully popping out. And so what they've done is... The, the, the fire is burning in the barrels, and the torches are to maintain the temperature above a certain degree. The reason what they're doing is they're taking these hay, bay, hay bales, they're catching them on fire, and they're dousing them constantly with water. There's people literally all night long they are doing this, and it's making this giant smoke, smoke hazes go up. Because what happens is if your vineyard does get a little bit of frost— and it does start to get a little too cold, when the sun blasts it, it instantly changes and your cells burst. Whereas if it slowly warms up, it actually doesn't affect it as much. It's like the Encino Man. Really? So all that black smoke slows the sun hitting it? It's meant for the sun in the morning is why they're doing it. Interesting. Because I had heard so many cool... I love that one. The other one I heard was they were using helicopters. And the helicopters, the way the rotation was, was pushing that warm air back down to the ground. I heard that it changes the ground temperature by 30 degrees at one point. Yep. That's crazy. They've been using that as well. So basically what you're saying is the fires are acting as vaccines against the cold. <laughs> I mean, it really is crazy the fact that the way they, they utilize the smoke to slowly warm up the vineyards in the morning. That's so cool not, about the smoke thing. Like the fires make sense, but the fact that they even went above and beyond to throw smoke out there yep. so that when the sun rises, it doesn't immediately throw its rays down and cook that cell it blocks itself out through the haze, and then it's, you know, it's a hazy field. Well, literally, I mean, think about some of these movies, like, where they had the frozen man. You wanted to frost him over a period of time. You don't want to just throw that dude in the microwave, and, like, <laughs> I'm like, Encino Man didn't Encino know, Man did a terrible job he, of this? He didn't know, he didn't defrost overnight, I don't think, you know? Yeah, they put the heat ovens all around him, and he came, maybe that's why he sounded the way he did. <laughs> that's why he sounds like Brennan Fraser. That's why he sounds like Brennan Fraser. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but... So, but if it actually slowly warms up throughout the day without getting blasted by the heat in the morning, it'll actually help protect anything that might be suspect to frost. Hmm. Brilliant. I mean, these are old school techniques. This isn't, and it's getting worse. I mean, with global warming, it's really yeah, getting bad. It's pretty crazy. With all the fires, everybody's going to deal with their unique things. Burgundy's going to deal with hail and frost. California's got to deal with the fires constantly. I was just there this weekend or last weekend. And it's green, and it is so beautiful this time of year. I mean, it's beautiful green. But when you look at it, you're like, dude, all that's about to die, all of it. All this green is about to become yellow, and one spark, and poof, there goes the entire valley, which clearly happened in 2017. 
So, by the way, I've noticed, by the way, as we eat, this is the first time we actually eaten food while we're drinking all this. Uh, we ate all the smoked Gouda. <laughs> I, I had a, a way less smoked Gouda. Oh, I mean, was there I, less? I, I, I didn't notice. because I kind of got into it last night and did a little damage to it. So. Uh, a couple <laughs> beers, a couple things of cheese. Yeah, I don't know. I ate about 70, 80% of it last night. Awesome. So. so what are your final thoughts, man? I know it's something you and I drink often, but for the listeners... It's honestly, this is just drinking so fantastic. This this makes me so happy. I could, as I drink this wine, I do not think there's there's it's flawless in my opinion. There's nothing that's out of whack. There's nothing that goes, oh, that's too astringent. How many times we over we we criticize every wine, every wine we taste, we're like, I like it, but I like it, but it needed this. It's missing this. Game of Thrones last week, uh, James opened that uh, big ass Syrah. Possible uh, Saxum. Saxum. That's what it was. Saxum. I uh, did not like you that. You didn't like it. I thought it was okay. It was pretty good. It was big. It wasn't. I enjoyed it. Yeah. But once again, we always find a flaw in every single wine we taste. Yeah. I find no flaws in this wine. Good point. Because when I drink that Saxum, all I, I couldn't get past certain meaty characteristics. Now, granted, but that's my taste. Like, again, as a, this is just me. So if you like big styles, great. Keep drinking. I mean, Saxum has a great following. This one is absolutely one of those wines where I've, how many times have we poured this for people and it turned them on to Italian wines? Every single time. This is a great great wine for Nebbiolo because you're right. The acidity isn't so overpowering. It's shutting your eyes. The tannin isn't so bad. It just sucks the moisture out and you need a glass of water to fill in. Like it's just a great, perfect wine for Barbaresco. I, I think these guys are doing a fantastic job. Yeah. And it's I mean, honestly, it's one of the few wines where I think this is one of the first Nebbiolos you poured for me. I think I'm almost positive. It was the first Nebbiolo you poured for me and I, it's now my favorite grape. And it's a classic label. I mean, this is the label they've had for a hundred years at the Protatory. I mean, this is... It looks like a dancing fox. I know it's not a fox. It's a guy, but from a distance. <laughs> and I love the fact they actually use the Abiesa bottle, too, in the large format. I'm mad. They're no, they don't have a cannon on here. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about the cannons of Barbaresco at all. Oh, for what will be the 500th time? I, I really, one day, I'm going to go there, I'm going to buy a cannon, and I'm going to shoot it off every November here in Arizona. <laughs> So there's a restaurant. So if you're in the town square of the town of Barbaresco, very, very small town, if you're underneath where the clock tower is, there's a little restaurant called Anticatore. And Anticatore has a... Uh, a guy, Old Earth. It has a guy who's a fifth-generation hand-cut pasta guy, and his name is Maurizio. Ooh. And he actually hand-cuts the tagine. Tagine is a egg yolk-rich pasta... That's almost like an angel hair, but he cuts it to order at your table. But it's a big, like it's a hearty pasta, even though it's angel hair? Yes. So he cuts it as thin as an angel hair, but he cuts up this giant cleaver of a knife. like, And he, you could tell he's been doing it since he was four years old. Wow. And his, his father did it. His grandfather did it. His great-grandfather did it. And it's his family recipe. And they literally serve like six things in this restaurant, but it's all about the tagine. And Purgatory's tasting room is right around the corner. And while oh, we, so they do have a tasting room. They do have a, a little tiny office tasting room you can go to. That's crazy. And it's not at the Protatory. It's not at the production so facility. Yeah, you can't go to the winery. No, it's not open to the you public. You get the tasting room. Correct. And this little, I was, we were sitting out there dining. He's sitting there cutting the pasta for us. And you just hear, ba-boom, 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 <laughs> And we're like, what the fuck? Are the French invading? <laughs> like, what is going on? That's not how that works. The French don't invade. <laughs> and in, in Barbaresco, they shoot a type of cannon at 
clouds during times of the year to disperse the clouds. It's actually illegal to do this in Barolo. It's always done in Barbaresco. And I asked Aldo... It's my favorite tradition. I asked Aldo Vac about it, and he basically said he's like, it's an excuse for the old men to get off work and shoot cannons all afternoon. Yeah, and you know how f- that is a generational thing that can get passed down so easily. Hey, uh, son, you want to go shoot a cannon? Yeah, obviously. Let's go do this. <laughs> That's something to like work for as a kid. You're like, yes, I want to be one of those guys. Like, it's the perk of being the owner slash winemaker. Imagine being the, the old guys. He's like, he's like, clouds are coming in. We're getting off work early today. <laughs> they're, they're all outside sitting there smoking a cigar, looking at the sky like, really? There's not a damn cloud. Oh, there's a cloud. There's a cloud. All right, everybody get your cannons ready. Yeah. Paolo, Maurizio, yeah. to the cannons. To the cannons. <laughs> it's got to be awesome. <laughs> We're going to make a shirt with just somebody pointing out, to the cannons. Oh, dude. Love it. All right, dude, let's uh, enjoy the rest of Easter. Uh, we're going to record a couple episodes this week, so guys, get ready. There's going to be a whole bunch of uh, Spilling the Truths coming. We're going to make up for the fact we didn't do one last week. We're going to do a rosé episode. Yep, we'll do the rosé episode. We're going to talk more about France. We're going to talk more about some of the fires that have gone on in France, both these controlled fires, the Notre Dame, and some other things that are going on. It's going to be a great week for us for uh, talking about wine. Love it. Thanks, awesome. guys, for listening. Love yeah. you guys. Cheers.